This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. Today, we have a very special episode for you. It's actually an episode of the other podcast I host or actually co-host. It's called Invisible Hate, and it's a true crime podcast with a twist. In each episode, my co-host Sadia Khan and I look at true crimes that are motivated by things like race, religion, or sexual orientation. You might know them as hate crimes. And as you know, there's a lot of reporting that's going on right now that says hate crimes are on the rise, a lot of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia mostly. But the truth is, hate crimes happen all the time in this country, and only a small percentage of them ever get charged. That's why we created Invisible Hate, the podcast, to shed light on crimes that are getting underreported and underprosecuted, and most of the time it's happening to minority communities. And just a note how we structure the podcast, in addition to reporting on a heinous true crime case every week, Sadia and I then debate at the end if the crime should have been considered a hate crime. In today's case, we look at one of the most egregious acts of Islamophobia and murder to occur in North America in recent years. It happened in June of 2021 when three generations of the Afzal family went on a stroll after dinner, only to be murdered by a 21-year-old driver in a pickup truck. Just a note that this podcast was recorded over the summer. The reason that we're sharing it now again on this feed is because of what's going on in the world today with the rise of Islamophobia. We think it's important for everybody to understand how bad things can happen because of the rise of hate going on in the world. So take a listen. It's an important case that we think you should know about and let us know what you think. Thank you. Today's story takes us north to Canada in London, Ontario. On the evening of June 6th, 2021, three generations of the Afzal family went on a stroll after dinner, only to be senselessly murdered by a 21-year-old driver in a pickup truck. The only survivor of the attack is the nine-year-old son, Faz Afzal. What motivated Nathaniel Weltman to murder this Pakistani-Canadian family so publicly and brutally? Are hate crimes pursued and charged differently in Canada? 
Today we analyze these questions and so much more. This is Invisible Heat. It's summer 2021 in London, Ontario, Canada. The Afsal family is very active and well regarded in the large Muslim community in the city. Salman Afsal is a 46-year-old father and physiotherapist who immigrated to Canada from Pakistan 14 years ago. He is a gentle soul who loves the outdoors, cricket and attending regular prayers at the London Muslim Mosque. Madiha Salman is a 44-year-old mother and PhD candidate in engineering at the Western University in London. 15-year-old Yumna Afsal is in 9th grade. She is an honor student and a sweet outgoing friend who spent weeks painting a large mural at her school uplifting students with the coat, shoot for the moon, if you miss, you land among the stars, unquote. Faz Afzal is Yumna's nine-year-old younger brother. Talit Afzal is a 74-year-old grandmother, artist and teacher. All three generations of the Afzal family were walking after dinner near their home. They were walking along Hyde Park Road, a wide suburban street on the edge of the city. As they approached South Carriage Road, a driver in a Dodge Ram pickup truck accelerates and jumps the curb to intentionally hit all five members of the Afzal family. As bystanders run to assist the family after the violent attack, the 21-year-old Nathaniel Veltman drives to Cherry Hill Village Mall, which is four miles away, and parks. When Nathaniel arrives in the mall parking lot, witnesses immediately notice the truck. It is damaged and streaked with blood and Nathaniel is wearing a helmet and a body armor. What the fuck? Now, some witnesses state his t-shirt had a cross on it, but that hasn't been confirmed. He then reportedly tells a taxi driver in the parking lot to call the police because he had killed someone. And guess what? He was laughing as he said this. Sadia, that's just a crazy story. And I remember when this happened, but I've forgotten all the details and actually didn't know some of these details. So, you know, just a family out on a typical walk. How many times have you done that yourself? How many times have I done that with my family? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone comes and jumps the curb and runs you over. I mean, it's just it's horrific if it's an accident it's even worse that it seems to be intentional um and the fact that this person beltman is laughing about it afterwards i mean how um crazy does one have to be um for for murdering this family seemingly at random it's just i don't have any words i said you're absolutely right and talking about us doing those normal things right so i go out every evening for a walk with my husband. And as I was reading and prepping for this story, I kept thinking about how unaware we are in a way of our surroundings, right? We are enjoying a nice stroll. We are talking to each other. We are sometimes arguing about things. 
But beyond that, we don't think as much about what's happening around us. So this is so horrific. And then the image of him in a protective gear, admitting to the horrendous crime he committed. What the actual fuck, Asad? This just makes my blood boil. Yeah, it is. But back to the story, Nathaniel is immediately arrested while the Afzal family is rushed to the hospital. Faz, the son, is the only survivor of the attack with major injuries. The day after the attack, June 7, 2021, Weltman is charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Within a week, a terrorism charge is also added. And now the charges reflect the fact that prosecutors say this was uh, terrorism. It has mostly been laid against people of color and is significant in that it shows that the law will will be consistently used against the broader public. Wow, that's fascinating. I'd love to learn more about this terrorism charge. And that's the first I've heard of something like that for, you know, an incident like this. I didn't know that that was a a thing. This is kind of like the the first thing that sticks out to me that how quickly a terrorism charge is added. Um, Very interesting. And again, this is taking place in Canada, right? And so this is something different. Right. So this is an interesting development, Asad, because it highlights an important overlap between hate crimes and terrorism, right? Now, while hate crimes primarily target individuals or groups based on race, religion, ethnicity, or other characteristics. And we've talked about this on this show a million times, right? Terrorism involves violence or intimidation to achieve political or ideological aims. Mm. So it's a bit different. Now, yes, these two concepts intersect in some instances, and it is crucial for you and I to examine this connection. Any thoughts, Asad? Do you think this could have been prosecuted as a terrorist charge from what you know already? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to understand specifically what this person's motivation was and is based on what you've suggested so far. But I'm assuming as we get into this story a little bit deeper, we're going to hear the same kind of you know, his background and ideology and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. There is this kind of like uh, thin line between what is a hate crime and what could potentially be an act of terrorism. And I've always thought of the definition of, you know, terrorism, yeah, as someone who's like uh, doing uh, an act of violence for a political or religious purpose. And so, you know, in in that sense, a, a lot of uh, crimes could be categorized as a potential act of terrorism as well. Absolutely, Asad. And as an activist, I feel it's essential to approach the topic of terrorism with caution. And I'll tell you why. Now, for me, the term terrorism carries significant weight and can be manipulated by those in power, right? Governments to suppress dissent and stifle legitimate social movements. So it's extremely important for us to use it cautiously because there are states that are purveyors of violence and have a vested interest in suppressing opposition or even marginalized communities. So while I can see this being an act of terrorism, I still want our listeners to be mindful of how and when terrorism should be used against a person. Anyways, Asad, moving on, I want to talk a little bit about the attacker. 
In an article by Stephen Marr in the Canadian news magazine McLean's, we learn an interesting and complicated story about Nathaniel Weldrum. He was born on December 20, 2000. I said, this is so crazy. He is so young. Yeah, that's shocking to me. I did not realize that, but that is super young. Exactly. To a devout Christian family in the Canadian Bible Belt. Oh, I had no clue Canada had a Bible Belt. That's that's new information. That's fascinating. Yep, that was my first thought. I said that I was like, oh shit, Canada also has a Bible Belt. Not that it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, I didn't know. He and his siblings were homeschooled by their mom and Weltman was described as a sweet-natured child who loved animals. By 2016, things began to change when his parents went through a complex divorce that he was caught in the middle of. He attended high school for his last two years of schooling and was described as quiet and eccentric. So we can see his demeanor, his personality change, Asad. A female classmate shared that there was something off about him. He moved out on his own at 16, most likely to escape turmoil at home. Now, Amar Nath, Amar Singham, an assistant professor of religion and political science at Queen's University, who specializes in terrorism and radicalization, shares in his article that family conflict can create a, and I quote, cognitive opening into which new ideas and new ways of thinking might make inroads, unquote. So basically what he's saying is that many other isolated, lonely young men have found online communities that offer support and understanding during times of crisis but also begin an indoctrination into extremism. And this is very interesting, Asad. I never thought of it that way. Just to kind of like put it in layman's terms, this is this idea that if, you know, your family is going through divorce or there's some sort of other turmoil or conflict that your family is going through and, you know, you're an impressionable young person, then you are kind of more susceptible to new ideas and new ways of thinking, which some of which could be you know, extreme ideologies and stuff like that, right? I think that's what it's getting at. And it's saying that, um, you know, young men, especially those that are kind of finding homes in online communities can be attracted to, you know, extremist thoughts. Yeah, but not all young men. Of right? course. Yeah, not all. And, and certainly people are more susceptible to new ideas because of the trauma that's happening in their personal lives. Right. So anyways, going back to the case, after high school, Weltman worked at an egg plant and a local engineering company. I said, what the hell is an egg plant? <laughs> I would imagine that's a farm, right? Yeah. Uh, an egg plant? Yeah. Or, or maybe it's a vegan thing where they're making uh, vegan eggs. I, I'm not sure. Who knows? If our listeners do, please write to us. <laughs> yeah. We would love to know what an eggplant is. Yeah. Anyways, co-workers shared in interviews both surprise at learning about the hate-fueled attack, but also times where he, and by he we mean Weltman, expressed violent racism and belief in extreme conspiracy theories. There were also 13 minor incidents reported by police connected to alcohol consumption and public disturbance. Hmm. So a pretty disturbed kid, Asad. 
Yeah, it seems like he, for whatever reason, whether it was a divorce or something else that was happening in his family life, he it seemed like he was having trouble in his teenage years and, and maybe early 20s and leaned more towards the extreme, you know, right, became more interested in extreme conspiracy theories. Yeah, unfortunately, this is something that we see a lot, right? The BBC News actually had a recent article about the rise of teenagers involved with neo-Nazi groups and far-right extremism. And the article kind of shared that during the COVID pandemic, it drove many young teens online and that this problem is kind of like a huge threat. I thought it was really interesting that this person, Gareth Rees, who's the head of counterterrorism policing for the National Intelligence Unit in the UK, said, quote, You've got people who are very young, very impressionable, and very vulnerable who are being drawn into a worrying area which not only affects their well-being, but also ultimately presents a threat to other people. You know, obviously the UK is different than Canada, than different than the US, but I think we saw this kind of trend over the last couple of years and mix that with kind of the uh, people spending more time online and different, you know, echo chambers on social media, you can see how how Veltman emerged from this macro trends we we're seeing in society. That's an interesting point, Asad, but I would like to see more research done that can establish either causality or correlation at least, right? So at least you and I don't have enough information to make that connection at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's take a quick break, Sadia, and then when we come back, I'd love to hear what happened at the trial. Yep. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, what happened to Veltman after he was arrested? So, as I said, after arresting Veltman, investigators filed for an information to obtain ITO application to access his car, electronic devices for data as far back as 2015 and weapons. They are hoping to unearth his motivations and what really triggered this attack. It's interesting, Asad, how they go as far back as 2015. And I wonder if there is any relevance in Veltman's life of this particular year. Yeah, it's hard to understand why that they want to go that, that far back. Maybe it has something to do with the device that they had that, that he had on them. But yeah, so that's six years. They're looking to go back six years. Um, that's yeah. a lot of information to, to go through. Right. And now we want to tell our listeners that the trial is set to begin on September 5th of this year, which is 2023. So much of this information is still concealed by the court, but there is some public information that informs his motive and state of mind that we are sharing here today on this podcast. Now, police found a dark web browser. Asad, do you know what a dark web browser is? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that it's a, you know, one of those browsers where you can access parts of the internet that aren't, you know, uh, publicly available to most people. So where a lot of nefarious things are happening, whether that's trafficking in different materials or uh, conversations or, or whatnot. So yeah, I would that, that, that to me is what a dark web browser is. You're absolutely right, Asad. And while the dark web itself is not inherently illegal, it has gained a reputation for hosting illicit marketplaces, illegal content, and facilitating various criminal activities, as Asad pointed out. So anyways, police found 
this dark web browser installed on his laptop and the URL written on a piece of paper. Some documents on the devices appeared to be hate-related material and relevant to the listed offences, according to the police. And in his apartment, police found a piece of paper, and get this Asad, with speeds and percentages. Yeah, I don't understand. What, what, what do you mean by speeds and percentages, like cars? I am not sure what this piece of paper shows, but my guess is that Weltman was probably calculating how fast he was going to be driving his car to make sure everybody was killed. I mean, we are speculating at this point. For right? sure, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I understand the speeds, but I don't necessarily understand the percentages. But yeah, that's it's scary and crazy for sure. Asad, also, we don't know if Weltman knew the Absal family prior mm. to the attack, but it seems like it was definitely planned and he may have targeted them because some of the women in the family typically wore hijabs and hence were visibly Muslim. Right. And so, yeah, so the idea is that what, what we're getting at is that Weltman did some prior planning did some kind of research and then was wanting to target people that he specifically thought was Muslim. And for him, that was people that were uh, women that were wearing hijabs. That's that's what I think we're saying, right? Exactly. I said I agree. Yeah, it's it's you know just so hard to hear because, you know, the Afzal family was just out there enjoying you know, their summer evening strolled together in their neighborhood, something I'm guessing they did often and only to be murdered by this guy, you know, that was targeting them because they looked a certain way. You know, it's just oh, so, so tragic. And I said, I keep thinking about women who do wear hijab. Now, I don't. And I can't imagine how difficult it must be for them, especially under the circumstances like any woman in Canada who wears hijab after this incident. She must be so scared. Right. Anyway, let's get an update on the upcoming trial. As we mentioned, the trial is set to begin this September and last for 12 weeks. And I don't know what relevance or importance 12 weeks has and how long a trial is supposed to be. Asad, do you have any idea as to what an average trial duration looks like? I, I don't. I, my, my guess is that that's based on the number of witnesses that each side will likely call. And so they probably just say, OK, you know, like for 12 witnesses, we need one day each. And so oh. then they kind of do some sort of calculation on how long they think that the trial will last. But that, that's that's my assumption as a non-lawyer and as someone who's only been in a courtroom to serve on juries. Hmm. So anyways, Weltman will be represented by Christopher Hicks, a veteran Toronto defense attorney who has handled many high-profile criminal cases. I said this is tricky for me because if Christopher Hicks is a high-profile criminal attorney, then he must be expensive. And I wonder who is paying the bill? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, you know, sometimes there are anonymous people. Sometimes it could be his family. Um, it could be him himself. Maybe he's independently wealthy or... You know, maybe Hicks is doing this pro bono so that he can raise his profile so that his future customers could pay 
I don't want to say this is why Hicks is doing this, but something like this, there's going to be a lot of press interest. So, you know, obviously right. we'll be in front of the camera every day. And, you know, it's like free publicity for a lawyer to, to do that, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Hicks successfully filed for the trial to take place in a different city and is likely to plead non-guilty based on mental illness. Now, for that approach to be successful, the attorney will have to show that Weltman didn't understand his actions. You know, I think that this is probably one of a few defenses that Veltman could potentially mount. And, you know, based on what you're saying, like, clearly he was dealing with some sort of issues in his teenage years after his parents got divorced. And it makes sense that they would go down this route, you know, whether they're successful or not, who knows. And given the evidence that we have shared on this podcast, Asad, I am a bit confused as to how Hicks will present evidence that could show that Weltman is mentally ill. It does not make sense to me. This seems pretty much like a premeditated attack based on perceived religion. But I will like to see how this legal approach plays out in this fall. Yeah, I think there's just not a lot of information that we have, you know, like maybe he's been seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist for years. Maybe he was taking different medications and maybe he was dealing with with something that we we are unaware of. None of it justifies, you know, the actions that he did, but could provide some deeper understanding as to his mental facility at the time. So as our listeners know that most of the time we not only discuss facts from the case, we also like to give context of why it could have happened and what was the social or political situation in a country or a town or a city. So I want to talk a little bit about Islamophobia and hate crimes in Canada. I want every single one of us to make a commitment, a solemn promise that you will do everything within your capacity to fight the scourge of racism, of discrimination. On the first anniversary of the deadly attack on the Afzal family, over 150 Muslim community leaders met with parliament members in Canada's capital, Ottawa, to demand action against Islamophobia. Fatima Abdullah, spokesperson for the National Council of Canadian Muslims, or NCCM, shared with Al Jazeera, and I quote, This brutal attack has forever altered the relationship that Muslim community has with Canada. Muslims are afraid to walk across the street. They are afraid of congregating at masjids, mosques, without having to look over their shoulder, unquote. Now, the Muslim community in Canada is still dealing with the trauma from a deadly 2017 attack at Quebec Mosque that left six worshippers dead and another fatal stabbing at a mosque in Toronto in 2017. It seems like these incidents have been happening consistently in Canada. In fact, in 2020, researchers reported that hate groups in Canada had tripled in recent years and anti-Muslim rhetoric was one of the most common topics between right-wing extremists online. 
In July 2021, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau held a national summit on Islamophobia. On the anniversary of the Afzal family's murder, he also attended a march in London. We invested in the launch of a new anti-racism strategy and a national action plan to combat hate. So a lot of things happening politically and socially in Canada, Sid. Yeah, you know, I think that the Muslim population is a sizable minority and they have more representation across society. And so it's good to see that that the government is doing, you know, stuff and responding. You know, Sadi, I struggle a lot with when we hear and talk about Islamophobia or anti-Semitism is on the rise or is being curbed, you know, when we hear these kind of words, because it's it's nobody's really tracking that kind of stuff on a right. um, and maybe they're doing a better job in Canada. But, you know, for me, you know, from my, where I sit, yeah, Islamophobia is a big issue, but it's really hard to quantify how bad it is because the data just isn't isn't there and hasn't been collected in a systematic way over the, you know, the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so, yeah, you know, um, I think for me, it's really important to have these conversations that the government recognizes that Islamophobia is an issue and that he is being present and that that is part of the discussion. So, you know, I'm glad to hear that action is being taken, but it's also just really upsetting that uh, a neighboring country, you know, uh, is dealing with extremism and Islamophobia like, you know, like we are here and like a lot of Western countries are. But I said after hearing such a tragic, horrific story, I think it's important that we share something positive that came out of it, right? So more than 14,000 people have donated to GoFundMe campaign to support Faz Afzal and his recovery from the attack. The mural by Faz's older sister, Yumna, that I mentioned earlier in the story is now the centerpiece of a permanent memorial at the site of the attack in London. And in 2022, the City of London hosted events in commemoration of the Afzal family. So a lot of positive things happening, community coming together, conversations about Islamophobia and its impact on Muslim community in Canada and beyond. Some good stuff, Asad. Yeah, so Sadia, I think that's amazing. The number of supporters that um, are supporting the GoFundMe and that they built that memorial for the family. And Fayez, I'm sure, needs all the support he can receive from his community to heal both physically and emotionally after being involved in such a traumatic event. Sadia, let's take a quick break. And then when we'll come back, we'll talk about whether or not we each thought this was a hate crime. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sadia, so this case, uh, crazy and uh, just so horrific. What are your thoughts? Is this a hate crime or not? I think I said this is a hate crime because it was premeditated attack. It was not something that he decided at last minute. And we also see a lot of information about Weltman being on all these different white supremacist websites and internalizing that ideology, believing in it, and then acting on it. So I think it definitely is a hate crime. But you know what? The trial is yet to begin. So I am curious to know how he will be charged. 
Yeah, you know, Sadly, I think you said it exactly how I'm feeling. It's like, you know, all the evidence right now points to that, yeah, this should be charged as a hate crime and tried um, as such. You know, like it's – I just keep on thinking like why did he target this family, you know, and what – when he was out for a drive, at, at what point did he decide that this was the family that he was going to target? And to me, it gets back to because some of them were wearing hijabs and, you know, that's – just so sad to me. And, you know, I think for me at the trial, I really, and we, we will track it and we'll share updates with our listeners as well. But, you know, I think I'd be interested to know, yeah, what was he dealing with any mental illness? And then also, you know, regardless, you know, how he's feeling about uh, what happened now a couple of years later, like, is he remorseful? Does he feel sad about what happened? And we've seen so many times in the cases that we've discussed, we see some people that own up to it and say, you know, I, I apologize profusely. And there are others that double down on their white supremacy or their hate. And, you know, I, maybe this is just who I am, but I really hope that he admits to what he did and can, you know, apologize to the family and, and give them a little bit of closure. You're absolutely right, Asad. And as I was reading through this case and doing research, what I realized, and tell me what you think, we use the term Islamophobia so often, right? But the term basically means fear of. And in a way, it puts the onus on victims, right? So the perpetrator can claim to be afraid of something and hence commit a crime in a way where they are protecting themselves. So I would rather use a different term, maybe anti-Muslim hate, which is more representative of what these perpetrators are really thinking and feeling. What do you think? Yeah, I love that you assume to know what these perpetrators are feeling and thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've come around more towards anti-Muslim hate, but you know, Islamophobia is also for me, you know, I think that gets to the same thing. Sure, Asad. Again, we can agree to disagree, <laughs> which we end up doing a lot these days. All the time. Yeah, for sure. Any final thoughts, Asad? Yeah, you know, Sadi, I think my final thought is just, you know, these incidences of anti-Muslim hate, of Islamophobia aren't happening all in a vacuum and they're all, you know, interconnected in some way, shape or form. And, you know, there are a lot of visible acts of anti-Muslim hate that are big headline grabbing you know, news stories. And then there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know, to a small degree to a lot of Muslims um, across the country, across Canada, um, that don't make the headlines. And, you know, I think just being aware of your rhetoric as you're talking to people and, and understanding and leading with compassion. I guess that's, those are my final thoughts. Yours? Yeah, I know you said it so brilliantly, Asad. I don't have anything else to add. All right. Well, we will keep people updated on this case when the trial starts in September. And if you have any thoughts, we'd love to hear what you think about this case and anything else that we're working on. You can reach us at info at Invisible Hate. You can also tweet at us or hit us up on Instagram. You can just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, 
I'm Asad Bhai. And I'm Sadia Khan. And if you have a story that you want us to cover, write to us. We would love to look at it and see if we can cover it on Invisible Hate. Thanks, everybody, for listening to that special edition of American Muslim Project, where we shared an episode of my other podcast called Invisible Hate. It's a weekly podcast, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week. We'll be back with a regular episode of American Muslim Project next week. I want to thank producer Ari for their help and the Invisible Hate team for letting us use this episode this week. See you all next week. Thanks.